so again, you representing this view of these businesses are trying to change the world. This is what the economics of growth looks like. And all the early stage e-com people going, what is this waste? What is this horrible inefficiency, right? And this is a common angle at which I feel like these things miss each other. They miss what they're trying to accomplish. So you say businesses that fundamentally change the way people and businesses behave and spend money will almost always get funded, whether they are profitable or not at that point in time or historically. This, this applies to both the public and private sector. I say, I don't disagree and don't have a problem with it. I have a problem when the edge cases are used as a club to elicit poor decision-making amongst entrepreneurs playing a completely different game than brands like Peloton. Then yeah. this is where you got snarky. You say very few, if any of the members of this group are filing S1s, and I say, ah, the old, if you didn't play professional football, you shouldn't be a commentator argument. You, should we ban women from the booth? <laughs> and, this, and that's when you DM me. So that's the setup. But I think, it, I think in that is my question to you that starts this out, that I think has to be the foundation for everything we're going to talk about to come, which is how do you define success of a business, of an e-com business? What is the level at which you go, they made it, they did it, that's a thing that I would check as successful? No, your podcast software is not broken. You just heard a very different intro, the e-commerce playbook podcast. That's because this is a very special episode of the e-commerce playbook podcast where taking over the feed today is going to be Taylor Holiday, very common guest, and Mr. Nate Pouline, a super e-commerce uh, veteran across all kinds of spaces. You probably know him as at Digitally Native on Twitter. And uh, Taylor and Nate, have arguments like the one Taylor just set up all the time on Twitter. They argue all the time. It's like they hate each other. They don't really hate each other. They don't really argue all the time, but they have different takes on a lot of different stuff. And so this episode, the two of them just said, forget it. Let's stop tweeting at each other. Let's get on the podcast together and let's talk. And so that's what this episode is. And I hope that you love it. It's just a great look at what it means to be successful um, in the e-commerce world. Really stimulating conversation. I just think you're gonna enjoy it a lot. Have a great time. Many digital exchanges have led to this moment. Uh, it is really exciting to finally be at least in uh, the next layer of the metaverse here with you moving from text-based to video and audio. But uh, Nate Poulin, uh, man, it is a pleasure to be chatting with you. I appreciate you having me on, Taylor. Um, it's been a long journey of sparring back and forth on Twitter. So like you said, I'm glad to take it to uh, other forms of media and have a little bit more of a fluid dialogue. Yeah. So since I, um, do you think it's worth doing intros? Should we like tell each other who we are? Like give, give people a little bit of the context, set up your authority here in this conversation in all the ways that you have over me. <laughs> so I've been in retail for 17 years, um, big companies, small companies, startups, but the really focus of my career has been in direct to consumer retail. Um, so I started in Beno at Bonovos uh, by way of Michael Kors, and I've been at now four different um, direct-to-consumer brands, uh, digitally native brands specifically, um, mostly in the venture back space, um, although I'm entering into the world of bootstrapping more recently. Um, I've also been a consultant with direct-to-consumer brands, and aside from being an operator and having hands-on keyboards, et cetera, growing brands. I also consult and, and I'm just obsessed with the, the space, obviously. Um, and so it's kind of my life's work. Yeah. What I love is, uh, and I think this is where we bond, is that there's this element of not just a public thinker 
but an operator. And I think we both value that identity as people who are sort of very actively participating in the growth of the things that we're also reflecting on. And so I think that's why people are drawn to you. Uh, as I look at it from the outside, I think that they really appreciate that you have very hands-on experience. You're still very much in a day-to-day -day living out the things that you're seeing. And I, I, I say I resonate with a lot of times Twitter is like the manifestation of what happened for me that day. <laughs> it's like I am processing these ideas in real time in a way that putting it out into the world offers me almost feedback or clarity or ways to sort of build um, just, yeah, like more clarity on my thoughts. And so that's sort of what's happening. I get the same sense from you is that like I see I can see into your day when you tweet. Totally. It's like it's definitely a manifestation of everything that I've seen, feeling frustration, successes, failures, mostly on the failure part of things. Yeah. You know, like I feel like we're all failing forward and uh, at least in this industry and we're all sort of like searching for truth and searching for ways to unlock what potential we see in these businesses. Yeah. And it's just very hard to do. And so the best way that I've found over the last five years that I've been on Twitter is just like, let's just share that. Let's broadcast. This is what I'm seeing or feeling. And then they'll invite the audience or your, you know, kind of community come back and say, have you thought about this? Or I don't disagree with that. And like, to your point, it helps sharpen and clarify the thinking that you can then apply to the work that you're doing every day. So I've got yeah, to kind of that's exactly about it. Um, yeah, D a definite virtuous cycle in that yeah. way. Um, okay, so we are here because we actually have a lot of things that I would say. I, the way I the see your interactions is that like it's looking at the world from a different angle. And I think our backgrounds, and I'm glad you shared that, I think set up part of that. So for me, much more in started in brand building with Power Balance and Kalo, uh, building those businesses, and now on the agency side, getting to work with brands, um, all consumer product, e-com focused, although there's brands that have much more broader distribution than exclusively e-com or direct to consumer. Um, and then also in four by 400 building our own brand still today. So my view, I'd say starts from the way I think about it is sort of like from the bottom up and then you've had more bigger top down experience that gives you a different vantage point as well. And so we see this thing in some ways, a lot of our arguments, I feel like are just representations of different worlds in some ways, um, more than, more than core disagreements. Yeah. But okay. I think it's, I think it's um, you know, it's like, it's sort of the world that I've been in is like, how do you, how do you actually go out and change the world but like through a brand and that involves raising money often and it's just a different, That's different right. world but i think we agree on quite a few things maybe we'll find out that we don't but um, yeah <laughs> it, it's an interesting kind of vantage point in two different directions so i went back okay to set this up i went back and i was like what was nate and i's first interaction okay so i scrolled all the way back to our dms you've got to go to August 27th of 2019. Okay. So that's how long we've been going back. The first DM. Okay. And this is a little bit of a, I loved it for me, but the first message is you sending me a DM that says you've crafted a response that has no rebuttal. Okay. And I, so I say back, haha, all good. I know we've never met. Uh, so I'm leery of this being perceived with any anger. I love the debate and appreciate banter with smart people would love to connect in real life sometime. Okay. So our origination is rooted in some debate about something, and it's just persisted in that way. If you go through our thread, we've sent each other hundreds of DMs. There's apologies back and forth in there. There's questions asked. Like It's just a long history of sort of using each other as mental sparring in a way that I've really appreciated. And what's funny is, okay, so to start off the conversation, I was like, what did we, what was this about? So I went and looked. And the other person that often ends up in this mix is Patrick Cadu, uh, who many people know. 
but he posts on August 29th, uh, Peloton's S1, okay? And he posts this screenshot from the S1, uh, and he says, why is it that all the PR darlings of the D2C age are wildly unprofitable with no path to profitability? And this is the first line in the thing. It says, we have incurred operating losses each year since our inception in 2012, including net losses of 7 million, 47 million, blah, 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 blah. And we'll continue to incur net losses for the foreseeable future. Okay, that's the line. So you respond, uh, not arguing with the spirit of your tweet, but it's almost universal for companies, even those profitable pre-IPO, to highlight risks and downplay forward-looking profitability. It sets a baseline for expectations and the investments required to continue top-line growth. Um, okay, so again, you representing this view of these businesses are trying to change the world. This is what the economics of growth looks like. And all the early-stage e-com people going, what is this waste? What is this horrible inefficiency, right? Like, and this is a common angle at which I feel like these things miss each other is that yeah. they miss what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and this is what you say. So you say businesses that fundamentally change the way people and businesses behave and spend money will almost always get funded whether they are profitable or not uh, at that point in time or historically. This, both, this applies to both the public and private sector. Um, I say, I don't disagree and don't have a problem with it. I have a problem when the edge cases are used to club, uh, or as a club to elicit poor decision-making amongst entrepreneurs playing a completely different game than brands like Peloton. Yeah. Then this is where you got snarky. You say very few, if any of the members of this group are filing S1s. And I say, ah, the old, if you didn't play professional football, you shouldn't be a commentator argument. You Should we ban women from the booth? <laughs> And then that's when you DM me. So that's the setup, right? But I think it. I think in that is my question to you that starts this out, that I think has to be the foundation for everything we're going to talk about to come, which is how do you define success of a business, of an e-com business? Like what is the level at which you go, they made it, they did it, that's a thing that I would check as successful? Good question. I think um, the success of a business is the ability to create long-term positive cash flow and profitability. Um, some would define the success of a business where, where a marker of the success would be some sort of exit, you know, some sort of return on invested capital that has been put into the company over time. I don't necessarily define it in that terms, but I think the longevity and the defensibility of profits over time is the marker for success of the company. Okay, yeah. So this is, and that's such, it's so important, I think for people to understand that view for you because over time, that's what I've learned. And I, I think so much of this gets lost. And so things I hear in there, long-term, okay? So help me understand the windows in which you assess these things. Cause you've dealt with, you've worked for some of the most legendary, long-standing American businesses. In our world, DTC is like five years old. And so we don't see things in those horizons. So what is long-term and is that an actual requirement for success? Like you would say that you have to exist for a long time to be successful? Again, I'm looking through it of, of like the lens of changing the world and changing the landscape and creating long-term value for consumers. Um, in Through that context, I would say a decade or more would, would okay. like put you into the realm of a long-standing. I think I personally, and this is just my personal belief with respect to business, um, short-term profitability, I have less appetite for because that inherently means that there's no defensibility of your business, right? Like that a competitor can copy your product, your approach, what have you, and 
basically move in on that business and erode profits. And I was an economics major in college. This is like fundamental, right? Like competition comes into the market to remove profit profits until there's perfect competition and there's no profitability in the industry. Right. And so through that lens, again, I have no strong appetite for those types of businesses. That said, I completely like honor and respect the opportunity for entrepreneurs to like run that type of business. And not every business is going to be venture scale. Not every business is going to be 10 years or longer. Um, that's just like my personal like perspective on what success looks like. Yeah. And I think you hit on exactly the alternative view, which is my view, which is the life transformation of the entrepreneur that the business affords. So when I think about success, the story is my story or watching my brother go from being a bartender to the level of success that he had when Kalo exploded. I watched, I've watched over and over and over again, this mechanism of entrepreneurs starting an e-commerce business transform their life. And so that's where I think I look at the distinction is you almost have this consumer centric view, which is like, how does this thing transform society, culture, consumer behavior in this transformative way? And I almost see it as the entrepreneur is that it's successful if their life became better as a result of the creation of the thing, period. Yeah. Like that's it. Um, so and I wouldn't, and just uh, I wouldn't characterize those types of that success as being unsuccessful in my worldview, just that like they're, this sort of like the things that interest me um, and the way that I sort of like think about the world is not necessarily through those terms because I haven't been an entrepreneur that and it hasn't changed my life in that manner. Totally. So I think as we get to like our first bullet point, I think, which is a fun one, let's use like discounting. Okay. Yeah. So I think this is a perfect example where from my worldview, thinking about entrepreneurs, it is not actually essential that you hold pricing power for a long term in order to protect or defend profits in order to see your life transformed like it's not actually those things aren't connected so this is where when we argue sometimes we're just arguing a different thing uh, which is like can a brand do discounts and have the entrepreneur's life transformed i would say absolutely and i can objectively say i've seen it occur but is there a risk to the future defense of profits i understand that and i would say i understand that as well so as you think about that, how would you frame, and maybe if you could sort of crystallize your point on discounts, what do you think the issue with them is? And what are you trying to warn people against when you describe it? Yep, so I look at it from the like the angle of the value chain that you're creating, right? So like it starts with inspiration, entrepreneur, whomever has an inspiration, here's a problem to solve, here's a product that I wanna to create to solve it, doesn't exist in the marketplace, here's the customer I'm going after. So you have that conception in your mind and you start to assemble the value chain. How am I gonna make it? What's the design? Um, what are the materials, et cetera, et cetera, until you have like a commercialized product and ready to bring this to market, whether you're producing it overseas, manufacturing it domestically, what have you. But you, that requires that like inspiration, that design, the aesthetic, the branding of it, the brand wrap around it in terms of like what you stand for is your value that you're creating into the world. And so that requires, as you know, and everybody else who's listening probably knows like a tremendous amount of effort and work to create something unique and special. And then you breathe it into the world and the difference between the price you set your product and, and what you can the customers willing to pay for it, that, that Delta reflects directly on how the customer respects what you've done, what you've created, totally. the equity of your brand. And so like for me, and I all, again, in, well, not again, but I think in terms of absolutes, right? So like 
if I if I could wipe wipe the world or or a magic wand across this, like what would I what would I want from a business? I would want a business where I command the price. I set it, I command it, people respect it. And not only do they respect it, but they're like over the moon for paying the price, even if it feels expensive to, you know, to some people. They're over the moon satisfied and happy with that price that I set. And as I start to like move off of that price, I'm I'm doing so because I'm I'm not articulating the value proposition. I'm not clearly defining the brand. My value chain is not oriented appropriately. So for me, discounting and particularly discounting on a regular basis is a reflection of not doing all of those things that could have protected that price point, right? And or, and or invited competition into the market where now your product or idea is not unique. So those are the types of things that start to erode price, um, the ability to sort of like maintain price uh, or price command basically in the market. So I think there's a question. So I, I, I agree with a lot of that premise. I, I love that. I've often heard people state like the difference between what something costs to make and the way you can sell it for is the definition of brand. Like I actually really like that as a definition of brand. I think it's a cool way to sort of quantify what is sometimes a very intangible idea uh, for people. But discounting and price is not the only thing that determines a customer's relationship to you, right? Um, there are other elements of their experience that contribute to their perception, right? Um, this from everything from customer service to distribution to packaging to marketing to affiliate, like all the things that surround it. So how do you then, and then, and the other thing is, is that there's also a question of like, what is the actual curve of degradation relative to discounting? So how much does it erode? You use the word erode brand. And is that off, can you offset that with other measures? Or is it purely detrimental all times full stop? And I'll give you three examples. It are, maybe we can go through these one by one and you tell me how you think discounting within this environment does or does not erode brand or if it's a tenant of it. So you're a Bonobos guy. Bonobos is owned by Walmart. Um, Walmart is one of the most successful, well-known brands in the entire world. And discounting is a core tenant of their distribution methodology. You wouldn't walk into the store and not see all sorts of sales and promotions all over the place. So how, how does that fit in that environment? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the there's sort of like a pricing pressure um, kind of like combination there between Bonobos, which started out as a premium brand, Walmart, which is a mass retailer that operates at a very different price point, um, and Bonobos really feeling the need to like migrate closer to that price point, open up the market. Because if you sit, you know, too high in the price point in that market, you're not going to get any traction with a consumer whatsoever. But I would go back and say a lot of the promotionality really is because again, like the, the difference of what Bonobos created creates in the world isn't strong enough to maintain that price point. So it's like, I lean less into the Walmart relationship and actually Bonobos just launched a brand called Fielder. Yeah, an offset. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's an offset basically. And I think part of that is to like further kind of di differentiate those worlds and have Bonobos be, have a sub brand that can actually live at that price point and right. let Bonobos swim further upstream potentially over the course of time. And so I think again, like in that context, it's more um, it's more of sort of like a, a poke at Bonobos and, and their inability to protect that price point and less of them feeling the need to like pull down into that Walmart world um, and create that distinction. What about the Walmart proper brand? 
Like they're a business that I would say matches all your success of criteria for definition of success and is discounting constantly. Well, that's not entirely. So like they do some degree of discounting, but Walmart famously went to everyday value pricing, right? And so that was their way of somewhat undercutting the competition through scale. And then Costco went in even deeper on sort of value pricing for bulk. And so those types of pricing decisions are largely um, around commoditized products, right? Like yes. they're selling commodities that are associated with a brand and it's really a volume play. And it's a play around consumer behavior. You know, like yeah. you consume these products every day. This is what you do. You go to Walmart, you go to Costco, you go to the shopping uh, grocery store, et cetera. And so the comp- the points of competition are not around product differentiation. They're around distribution. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Distribution. So, so, so in my mind, discounting can be a part of the portfolio in so much that it's part of the business strategy that's offset by other things. Right. And I think, so like, I, this is exactly how I think about it is that, um, the core value proposition, if the product's idea, if the value is that it's premium, is that your entire value to the consumer is predicated on the idea that I represent something that asserts a difference between the price and what I'm selling it for, then discounting erodes that narrative. Mm -hmm. But if that's not the narrative, then how critical is the price to maintaining the brand? If the brand isn't built on that idea. Give me, give me like a product example or a brand example that you point to in this. So, so, I mean, I, I think I looking at Walmart's website right now and they have discounts everywhere on lots of commodities. Amazon is not predicated on like their white labeled product is based on how cheap it is. Like that's the value proposition to the customer, right? Like right. in that case, that is the brand. I think about even, even I've watched, you know, um, large retail fashion businesses like that have done this in a way that part of the value proposition is the discount of the price that you're receiving. Um, like, so the idea that discounts deteriorate a brand message that's based on it being a cheap price feels counterintuitive to me. It's like that, it it doesn't actually erode it. Isn't that so like in the example, I think Cole is a really good example of this actually. It's sort of like old days. I'm not sure they're pivoting their business a little bit, but it's a high, low strategy, right? Like we're going to like, we're going to start with this margin, but we automatically know we're going to go to this price and the consumer is going to respond to that because they, uh, they really like the idea of getting a bargain. They like the idea of getting a deal, but right. the only point of setting the price that high is to create that gain. The, the price of that product was never sure. the price that's on the ticket. Right. Sure. And so I feel like those are, Again, those are those types of decisions are in are plays into markets where it's a commodity product. There's so much competition. The consumer has so many different choices, and I think those types of brands are um, there. They have a less they have less strength with respect to e-commerce and direct to consumer than brands that are able to maintain price to create product differentiation, to create brand differentiation, because as we'll get into like that margin that you're creating is so necessary. And it's so necessary to offset all of the costs of doing business direct to consumer. So I think it's more of like, we talked, you talked about it's distribution, it's a channel play. um, And I, and I would say like, 
it's somewhat like of a toxic cycle, not only for the consumer, but also for your value chain, for supply chain, for manufacturing, because you're fundamentally like producing too much goods, marking down goods and like rolling through this on an ongoing basis. And I think there's costs to that um, from for the from a macro perspective. I think you have to you have to you have to consider the opportunity. Like one of the things we talk a lot about with our clients is the idea of uh, maximizing the incremental uh, marginal value of every sale. Okay, so if I'm low on inventory, as an example, I don't want to run ads to something that would sell out organically if I don't have uh, as much inventory. I want to make sure I'm maximizing every time. But you cannot assert that every product has the opportunity cost of a full price sale as part of its reality. Like there are crappy products. There are things that customers don't want at the price you tried to sell them them, right? And there's not a way to guarantee that you can come up with a reason for them to buy it, buy it at the price that you've stated. Um, and so I think this is especially like, like if we switch to, okay, let's set aside the Kohl's, Walmarts, who's like that's started on the cover of Nike.com, the darling of D2C or of Ecom. Like the, I would say they're pointed at as they get digitally strategy right as good as any brand on earth. The header bar on .com right now says shop 40% off select styles. Right. But so they're, they're, that is the one world where I will sort of lay down my sword on discounting. Um, as an inventory person, as an operator, that's yes, nice. yes. So cash, right. Hand. Nike is inherently in a fashion business, right? They're in a business where there's competition on, on the same product. They're in a business where there's seasonality. And inventory is very difficult to get right. It's not it's not at once manufacturing. So that's right. as a fiduciary of the business, you have a responsibility to maximize the margin on that product. And sometimes sitting and waiting on this product is not going to be the right decision for your business. That's right. You gotta take the price action. So that's where that's where I open the door to discounting, right? Is like how do we keep our inventory clean? How do we turn over cash? How do we like find the right landing spot for this inventory? And how do we maximize the margin on that sale? So I think right. you're right. Like the, the incremental margin on a transaction relative to the value, the fair market value of the goods is a very strong mindset to have with respect to discounting. But to do it, to do it as a means to drive top line revenue or distort demand is that's where I draw the line. I, okay, so I, I think we can agree on that premise, which is that if it is a driver now of, of like you said, top line revenue or to, to falsify the idea that you're experiencing growth that you aren't, um, th I agree. There's a lot of risk factors to that for sure. Yep. But, I, but I think that the blanket idea that discounting isn't useful, I think that like in fashion, so I think about Nike, we work with Ann Taylor and Loft that are businesses like this, where basically you design a set of product that you bring for a seasonal release that you hope to sell all of it at full price, <laughs> right? Of course, like that's the goal. You go to market, here it is, market the heck out of it. Look how beautiful it is, it's amazing. But the market doesn't take all of it, right? Yeah. They don't agree with the premise. And yeah. so at some point your choice is, I've got a bunch of inventory that's on my balance sheet, that's deteriorating cash, and it's the season's about to be over, winter's coming, my tank top's gotta go, and you gotta turn that back into cash. And that becomes part of a cycle that you're every season you're trying to maximize the incremental value of that release in total marginal value, but it is the right decision to move that inventory out um, at some point, right? The only thing I, I yes, absolutely, like 100% agree. What I would add to that is the like importance of a business to like hindsight those decisions and hindsight that execution, right? Like yeah. looking back and saying, 
what you know, like what was our go-to-market like? What was the value proposition? Who did we market it to? What channels, et cetera? And the exercise that I like to to do as part of that hindsight is to pull aside all, add up your discount dollars, so your promo and your hard markdown dollars. Let's say you're an apparel business, and yeah. say this is lost margin, right? I spend below the line of that. I spend a ton of money on variable costs and all that stuff doing business, but I've already started at this point where I lost margin. What if I took those promo dollars and invested it on the next cycle into things that I could do better, better packaging, better advertising, better, better creative, better communication execution, whatnot. I think that's the exercise that's missing from the market. When we talk about the for brands in general, when we talk about discounting is like, some of these brands at a certain scale, you're spending tens of millions of dollars on discounts and gross margin dollars. That's like totally. It, you think about it as like the revenue line, but you're but many brands aren't thinking about that other delta. So how would we reinvest twenty million dollars or forty million dollars into this business and run at full price and right. you know buy, try to t dial in the buys and really get it clean? Um, I think there would be industry-wide, and this goes beyond direct consumer, I think there'd be a lot more healthy businesses, top line and bottom line, um, if that were the case. And I think there'd be- well, don't you, but okay, so, but the problem is it's double the risk, right? If you if you spend the money on the additional, you know, whatever, wherever you're saying to deploy that capital to ensure full price sale and you're wrong, now you're doubly wrong, right? Like, but, and, and the problem is, I don't actually think the levers are that clear to people. Like yeah. if they if they knew a place to deploy capital to maximize the, the full price sale, they probably would do it. But I, I don't know that it's that simple as saying like, even if there was $20 million, what would you do? Like, what would be the thing that would do that? I totally agree. I think it's a, a very, both sides of what you just described are extraordinarily difficult. Um, and that's part of the reason why I don't think many people really go down that road. But yeah. having, starting the conversation and building a set of assumptions is 90% of the battle. You're never going to be right, right? Like yep. it's all just assumptions and then what happened and then assume again and then what happened and you just learn that way. But yep. I, I really think that there's a lack of like, there's a lack of questioning because it's also fundamentally, it's the easiest thing to do in your business. All of those totally. other things are so- No, hard, I agree. I agree. It's right? a mental like, shortcut. It's a mental yeah. shortcut. Yeah. So I, I, I love the idea that what you would hold people to is accountability to a consideration with that that sort of alternative off the table. Right. Like you say, what would we do if we couldn't do this? And let's do that thought exercise for the sake of seeing what comes out of it. It's like I'll, sometimes I'll say a great thought exercise is imagine you had to grow your revenue. And the only thing you were allowed to change was the unboxing experience. What would you do? Like and those kinds of constraint activities, I think, um, really help to generate sort of new thinking versus like, no, let's just run the sale again. So I, I definitely agree. And All right, I think like you, I mean, we shop, everyone shops, you get the product yeah. to the mail. You can tell instantly who's had this thought, right? Or who's like spent the time on that. And and that I think is really like one of the big differences in success, like we talked about. Like, totally. You know? Yeah, I agree. Okay. So I think I think we've wrestled this one to the ground. It parlays, I think, closest to the AOV conversation, yeah. which is like, I'd love to understand your position more here because I don't think I'm clear on why you're such a proponent that AOV is the right measure to say like, AOV up equals always good. It's some combination of AOV and gross margin uh, okay. equals always good. But, and this is really specific to e-commerce. I think you AOV in the physical sense is, can be anything really, and you can make money. Okay. Um, relative to e-commerce, so let me just like carve out this like scenario really quickly. 
you've got brand A and you've got brand B. Brand A's average order value is $40. Brand B's average order value is $140. Both brand A and brand B have the same gross margin, 70%, right? You, you layer in all the variable costs, which we could talk about. So you've got all the different line items, right? Let's say brand B's, so the higher AOV brand has double the variable costs and brand B has four times the customer acquisition costs, or even let's say triple, just to make this easy. The like contribution profit of those two businesses in a pure play e-commerce sense, the brand B is gonna be roughly four times higher than brand A, right? On the first transaction, contribution profit. Now I know I just threw a number, bunch of numbers at you. Yeah, right. But, but I, I gotta check the math there, but- Check the math, check the math. <laughs> which is without even getting into the specifics of the numbers, it's some order of magnitude more profitable at a bottom line, uh, on a bottom line basis because the variable costs underneath that transaction are not as wide as the original average order value. That's fundamental. And in order for the for the low AOV brand to catch up, they need to have a lot more transactions, obviously. They need to keep customers. They need to not repay for customer acquisition costs over and over again. And so there's this, there my in my mind, the outcomes in e-commerce and the options to those outcomes are more likely with a higher average order value brand than they are with a low average order value. I think that both can yeah. survive in unique conditions, but the but what AOB to me, because of the delta between the average order value and the variable costs and the cost of sort of the, you know doing business, it creates more room for you to be able to invest, for you to be able to like capture that margin and roll it into, into future transactions and gives you better better optionality there. So I, I I just think that everything that you did after you said AOV is the point, right? Like, because it, you can't, it's what you're actually saying to me is having lots of gross margin is a good thing, which to me, that's true. But, but if you cannot, if you just say AOV and then you say none of the things after that, you can't actually make a determination on the value of the thing at all. Because here's an opposite scenario. Brand A has an AOV of $40. Brand B has an AOV of $100. Brand A has 85% margin, brand B has seven. Like it's just, the point is that you have, with, with AOV, it is useless without additional context. It provides you nothing. I would agree with that, but it's still having that higher transaction gives you a better starting point to orient all of the costs underneath that transaction. And also- Why, what do you, what do you mean by that? They're, because, they're, they're, they're percentages. There's, there's certain like fundamental like inputs to this, right? There's like, you know, pick and pack and customer care per order and um, the cost of the product, et cetera. Like you can compress those more easily with a high AOV than you can compress them. But that's so variable, right? It depends on like the pick pack fee is relative to lots of the attributes of the product. The pick pack fee on a mattress is a hell of a lot higher than the pick pack fee on a piece of jewelry, right? Like the actual storage costs, all the associated fees with it, like you can't possibly understand just on the basis of the AOV whether those variable costs are actually in the favor of the product or not. There's no way to know. There's no way to know. But again, there's more ways to make the sausage on the high AOV side. Like you're, you start from a point where you are fundamentally tightly constrained in a low AOV business. And also I will add to that, that the work product required via the number of transactions to do the same amount of volume is that much higher as well. And so sure. like on a per transaction basis, 
you just have to work a lot harder. And I well, but that's that's, that requires that that requires the same problem though on the capitalization and cost side of the business, right? Which is if I have a $150 AOV and I have 50 points of gross margin, 60 points of gross margin, my inventory purchasing costs are also amplified at that same scale, right? So I get it. It's got better upside and larger risk and greater capitalization requirements and all these other levels of complexity that increase the likelihood of failure because the capital deployed in any instance is way greater. So when you think about like the anti-fragility of a business, if I'm wrong on an inventory purchase of a $500 product, I just burned a shit ton of capital. If I was wrong about an inventory purchase on Kalo rings, cost me nothing. Yeah. So what, which, which one actually introduces greater risk into the equation? Like, so there's trade-offs on both sides of it, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I am like a proponent of average order value as like a key marker of the business, but there, you, we could go all day on like all of the other things that like really matter and all of the different like ways that businesses can architect their strategy and how they're going about comp- competing in the market uniquely. Um, I just, again, think like the likelihood if you create a pr- premium product and a premium brand at a, at like a higher price point that de- defines like a higher average order value on balance, your the protectability, the brand equity you're creating behind it, theoretically, the intellectual property that goes into it gives you a little bit more latitude to, to continue to compete um, in the market yeah. versus like a low low AUR, low AOV product, in my mind, again, it's going to be easier to like go after and compete against again, because the capital requirements getting into that business are so much lower than the the other alternative. Yeah. So I don't, I don't mind that. I think that what's really valuable to say is that each business within its band of its pricing power should maximize it to the best of their ability. They should push gross margin up at whatever range they're in. And that's always going to create more opportunity. But to say that brand A, to compare across industry, across product on the basis of AOV is crazy to me. Like, and people will use this. They'll be like, I have an $85 AOV as if that means anything to me about the viability of the business. And so like, I mean, Starbucks is the classic example to me. That's just like, I don't, the idea that the primary value proposition is the total cart size is just like, I can't wrap my head around the idea that that's the thing that you're actually trying to maximize because it's not. If you do that at a negative contribution, it's useless to you. Like it, like it means nothing, no matter how high the contribution or high the average order value is. I agree. I will say though, like you're that's an example of another retailer that competes in the physical sense. Like the like Starbucks would never be selling like hot coffee via e-commerce and having it delivered to you. Sure. It's just not a yeah. business, right? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to do it in Canna form, right? Like, you know, Canna, the business, right? Where it's going to become a software layer to their business, right? But at at which point the average order value will move down to that range for them. And that's, that's how this changes, right? Is that what gets reduced is the cost in the supply chain, right? And and so as the cost in the supply chain goes down, the margin gets wider and that gets wider on every dollar decreased as well. And so it's like, again, it just comes down to like, who wins is who has the best product that consumers love. (laughs) <laughs> like, right. Like, and so, and so your ability to deliver that into every medium, whether it's retail or online, like, it's just not about how the total dollars are. Like, that's not an attribute that I, I, I understand that like at the extremes, there's constraints, like selling a $2 product on the internet. Like you've got to offset the fixed variable costs that you can't, that are not percentages. We're not talking about your payment process. You're talking about the dollar pick fee, where if you have a $1 pick fee, that's a hard fixed cost that you have to offset that. At some point at the bottom tail of it, I get it. Like it makes sense. 
But once you get like 25 bucks and above, I'll take $25 and 85 points of lay, like cost of delivery all the way to the consumer margin over a hundred at 40% all day long. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I sort of agree with that point, but I still go back to the like this, that Delta that you're creating at a high AOV with respect to e-commerce and what you had said about like the, the sort of variable cost of doing business and what you put, put into the service that you're providing, like all of those variable costs for me are, should be called service investments, right? Okay. They should yeah. be called like, that's, you should not be really intently trying to mitigate those under a service level to your customer, because one of the primary value propositions of direct consumer as a channel is the idea of service and the idea of one-to-one -one connection. So anything that sits below the line on gross margin is an opportunity for you, like you had said, the 100% open rate on, right. on e-commerce uh, orders, like your packaging, the design yep. of it, the all of that that goes into the physical manifestation and delivery of your product and even post-purchase um, service of your product. I would just, I like to have infinite amount of dollars to invest there because that's where you're going to gain the most leverage on the competition, in my uh, opinion, and also gain the most leverage on physical retail because they cannot compete in, the, in that sort of like realm. Totally. And, and I, I love the way that you actually think about this as um, incremental value creation. Again, I, I, it all comes back to like deployment of capital into the area of greatest potential return, right? And right. That, that is customer service more often than people I think would realize it is. It's packaging more often than people realize it is, right? And I think that's a lot of the heart of what you're getting at is like, hey, all this money that you're jamming over here, there's a better return in the investment in the quality of the thing itself, you know? Like, yeah. and, I, and I, 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 I think that's a good thing to champion and I appreciate sort of that view. I just, I think the parameters with which it, it like gets defined, I think, and this is why like, and I get it, I can be dogmatic too, saying AOV is the worst metric in the world is intended to like instigate and cause a conversation. But I just, I'm tired of hearing like, my thing is better because my AOV is higher than yours. It's just like, it, uh, uh, I think this is another place where we're both right. Cause we're coming yeah. at it from the both like yeah. angles and it's just totally. sort of like, the, we agree on the underlying principles, but we can still see the worldview in two different ways, which is totally yeah. fine. Totally. So let's let's move to paid media because I think this is like again to our two worlds as different. You as a you call yourself a retailer, which I think is interesting. I like that. I like that that you use that phrase for did well. Your logo is digitally native. I like that. But um, whereas for me, obviously, paid acquisition is a core part of what we do. So understanding that we're both talking our book here a little bit, but what is the primary issue that you have with that channel um, and the utilization of it? I think. Um, if I were to go back to sort of like the origins of the direct consumer digitally native brand movement, you had this sort of like fundamental thesis that you could go out on the internet and acquire customers cheaply, let's say in the early days. And because you could acquire customers cheaply, you could scale the business quickly and you wouldn't really have the overhead and fixed costs of operating retail stores or you wouldn't have to trade out a portion of your margin to yeah. a retail partner via wholesale. So that's like the thesis. And so it's like, let's invest in these businesses. The contribution profit goes like this, fixed cost goes like that. At some point, contribution profit overlays fixed costs and all of a sudden the businesses are profitable. It's out into the future two or three years, but you know what? We feel really good about the model because we have strong assumptions around LTV and it's gonna to return to us down the line because we don't have to keep acquiring those customers. So that's like the premise 
that I grew up with. And what has actually like taken place is, and this isn't just related to paid media, but the cop the the one of the fundamental assumptions was that as customer acquisition costs started to like be measurable in a meaningful way on these you know paid media uh, channels and the sort of ad auctions, um, the assumption was we're going to get better. Everyone's going to get better. We're going to buy better. We're going to create have creative that's better. We're going to have copy copywriting that's yeah. better. We're going to better products. Pack over time is going to go down. And so we're actually going to get yeah. leverage on our marketing dollars. And that's going to be part of the economic story of this business. Yep. And that, in addition to the logistics and all that kind of stuff and the cost of materials, like all of those assumptions were flawed, right? And so that's like where we're at now is like sort of in this world of realization of like, actually CAC goes up and to the right. And so does our variable costs and our fixed costs actually grow faster than we thought they were going to. And this is now like feeling like a very hard business to make money in, you know, and, and like our, our time horizon that we thought we would get there is much longer than we expected. And that's why we're seeing, I think, brands stay private for 10 years and 15 years. And even the public brand still not showing profits is because it's like, we're trying to wrangle this beast and it's only getting harder. And so when I look at the, the date, the marketing tactics that predate this, the catalog tack, the world of catalog, the world of early direct consumer brands that were really low funnel and like top of funnel were very different like approaches than just blasting on Facebook. I think there's like a retrenching there, but there's so much invested in this world of Facebook and Instagram and these other sort of emerging platforms that I just think it just keeps going. It's almost like the markdown conversation. It's just like, keep feeding it, keep feeding it. And like, I take the perspective as a non-marketer full disclosure that there were, it's another area where if we just zoomed out and said like, mm, if we, what are the other tactics that we could do that really would like move the needle? But I'll pause there and turn yeah. it to you. Like, what's your, that's, it's so good. And I, I think the narrative that you're describing is one I would also reject. And, and I think it is the one that is at the heart of a lot of this industry in a really negative way. Um, this whole idea of, yeah, like that, Ecom is going to be this high margin channel and we're going to gain leverage over time and CAC is going to go backwards and our variable costs will improve. Like, I agree. It's all faulty. Okay. But I think to then dismiss what is possible then in consideration with what this channel Facebook represents, which is the greatest distribution mechanism to reach human beings around the world ever created. Okay. And then to hold up catalog as if like that represents something that this isn't is like mind boggling to me. Instead, what if we reframed it this way? What if we said, no, no, no. The point of this e-com channel is not margin. It's not margin. It's volume of distribution and customers, right? That then inform a holistic omni-channel strategy that maximizes margin across the entirety of the business. And which, which, which uh, distribution point for our message provides us the best value of all the available distributions of the messages for the entirety of the business. And it's Facebook and it's not close. There's nothing even close. And so now, instead of taking all of those dollars, putting them on my e-com P&L and saying, well, my e-com margin sucks, but my Amazon revenue is amazing and my wholesale margins are really, really cool. Meanwhile, I've got all my ad dollars that distribute content, my brand, to the entirety of the world in the most direct, incredible format ever is showing up on this like one view of the business. The best brands that we work with understand that this is a marketing distribution channel that reaches people in the most amazing fashion possible. And whatever the message is that they want to deliver, they think about all the points of value capture that they have 
their website, their stores, their other marketplaces, and they think about how to maximize the total available value capture across all of them, right? Yeah. And they don't think about e-com as this place that's got to be like, um, you know, net massive more margin than wholesale. That's like that myth. I agree that like it perpetuates a falsehood. Um, now, is the specific channel under unique margin pressure in this moment? They are. Right. But that's not different than wholesale necessarily. You've got rising CAC. Facebook's going through its own set of challenges. Right. You've got labor costs that are out of whack, especially in the e-commerce world. You've got all the supply chain issues. Now, the supply chain, and the labor ones, they don't change the economics on any point of distribution. Like that's just, just sort of true period. Right. Yeah. So the, the CAC question then becomes this question of like, all right, well, what is true here relative to every other point of distribution? And what are the options to drive value at the other points of distribution? And those are worth comparing to each other. Right. But I just I would just contend that the answer is still going to be Facebook over every other channel. See, that's where I would challenge back because you you describe and I don't disagree with the like power of distribution on Facebook. It's there's you can't actually like there's no other. There's no thing that. that has billions of active users. It doesn't exist. Right. And that's part of why cat goes up into the right. Exactly. Um, the because well, you're reaching more people. Yeah. What I would challenge, and maybe this is just my bias or from my experience, et cetera, is I would stack rank the Facebook as a quality distribution channel at the bottom of everything, oh. right? I would like, hold on, hold oh. on. I would, I would put it below TikTok. I would put, and oh. I don't know anything. I would put it below um, wholesale. I would put it below physical retail. Um, I would put it below mailing a really great catalog. Um, I would put it below pretty much every other way of like actually touching the customer because in, in my view, when, if I'm a, if I'm an apparel brand and I'm targeting a specific customer, there's no barrier to entry for every other apparel brand to go after that same customer, which becomes noise to that customer, right? Like it's, we're banging into each other as all of these different direct consumer and then major retails coming into this like pool. And it's all this blind auction. It's all going out to these consumers and we're having these impressions. And we, what does your mailbox look like? What does your mailbox look like? It's, it's intense, but at least like I have something tangible. <laughs> I have a physical thing. Like I can compare like two catalogs and be like thoughtful about it. I'm not just like scrolling through in this mindless, like endless, uh, you know, kind of trail of trail of brands. And, and we're using mechanisms to cut through that trail that are, that are purely gimmicky. They're like, they're at the, they're the things that, that retailers do at the checkout to like grab your attention, to get you to get one more thing. And, right. it, and it, and it, it also requires this, like, and you know better than I do, but like this broad set of creative and testing and layers and, you know, retention and acquisition and like all of these different things that we have to do put it out there in the world. And when you think about the product that started this whole thing, when we go back to the value chain, the product and the idea and the inspiration, that was, that was like around one thing and one belief and one concept. And it wasn't about like, how do we blow this into like all of this different creative to make it work and to actually make this efficient. It was about a clear message. And I feel like that's where, but beyond the distribution piece, I struggle with like, the clarity of it, and you kind of scoffed at catalog as a distribution me method, but the clarity of catalog is so dialed because you have a mailing date out in the future, you have product that you have to create for it, 
you have creative and a vibe and a concept and shoot photo shoots and all of that is orchestrated on an incredibly long time horizon until it lands. Yeah, which 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 is a mechanism for like is somebody who like you think about manufacturing and supply chain. The length of everything you just described is the fundamental flaw. Like right. it, it, it asserts so much hypothesis about rightness that it sits in the hands of people that are asserting things in a non-thoughtful way. Yeah. This is the problem is that the, the competitiveness of the channel reflects the value of the channel. If, so if the catalog business was helpful to businesses, every business would do it. It's not actually a barrier to entry creatively. It's not a barrier to entry from a price standpoint, like billboards, OTT, YouTube, TikTok, if they worked, everybody would go there, right? Like there's not actually a barrier to entry. There's not, like, there what is, is the difference? To entry, which is again, going back to the product life cycle, it's mimicking that product life cycle. Like one, two things, right? One is exactly what you just said, is that the value of the platform has drawn so much attention, energy, resources, human capital into that world. And now it's, and now it's going and it's churning, et cetera. And it's pulled all of those resources away from what traditionally would have been a, a like much lower life cycle, much slower because you can spend on an ongoing basis and you can learn and it happens in real time, et cetera. I think that their appetite for brands to slow down to say like, we're not going to be able to manipulate and drive revenue on a day-to-day -day basis. We're gonna to have to start the process nine months in advance to that execution point in the future. There's no appetite to do that. I think that's the barrier for a lot of brands. No appetite for who? Like no appetite from who? No appetite for the brand to like move away from. But what's driving that? What's driving the pace? What's driving the pace of expectation? Of all I these businesses. I think it's still the fact that there's this like gold mining, gold expedition on these paid channels. And there's like somewhat of a proven track record and real attributable data that you can read in real time. That feels very safe. Like you put that under your pillow and go to sleep every night, wake up right. the next day and feel good about it. Right. Versus like this like slow cycle that just feels like I can't control my destiny or in terms of like a minute by minute, um, you know, kind of like paid cycle. Yeah, but like it feels like the, the expectation of the pace of growth is driven by the capital that's invested in the business that wants a return on that capital in a period of time. And that is like in our industry, the biggest thing I look at like is of all those businesses, the Peloton S1s, they're all on a growth rate. These are these are like incredibly rapid scale businesses. Yeah. That's the standard of the industry. Yeah. That's that's the that's what everybody points at and goes all birds. Look at their look at their S1. Like this is what it means to be successful. Non-profitable, massive growth, massive customer acquisition, right? Like that's the game that the market has framed to people. That I would say like you then will also go and defend as the primary sort of like point out as like that's the standard. So what those people didn't get there not utilizing the things that you're describing? No, I agree and I think I think there there was an assumption when the money went in. So let's think about when the money went into those businesses. Yeah, 17, 18, There was 18, an assumption 19, when the yeah. money went in that it would be deployed and returned back to the company in a way that was accretive, in the way that was ROI positive relative to the other channels that we just talked about. Yeah. Um, and that assumption takes a while to bake out, right? And totally. Well, it depends on how far you're pushing the window of payback, which I think is a big part of the issue too. 100%. I'm glad you touched on that because I think one of the original assumptions as well, when that money went in, was that LTV would be very great. And like there's very, very few businesses that I've observed where LTV over a super long time horizon is actually like 
easy to maintain, right? Sure. And I think everybody probably would agree with that. Um, and usually those businesses are in markets where the consumer behavior is so great. Like Chewy is a perfect example where it's like, yep. they just acquire cohorts and set it and forget it because you're always going to buy dog food for your pet, right? Like yep. you're you see this in like baby formula, you see these in these routine grooved businesses. Yep. 100%. But that same assumption was made, and even it sort of came from the SaaS world where VC really like ran out of, you know, companies to invest in during the time frame, moved the money over D to C, right. and expected those same sort of like SaaS growth curves. But the fundamental assumption around LTV was flawed when Shopify and others wiped out the barrier to entry and manufacturing became a lot easier in terms of making the connections with the right manufacturer. And then you net, then you quickly entered into this world, which was then, you know, catapulted by the pandemic where it's easy to get into business here. And, um, you know, your LTV is at jeopardy because 10 other competitors want to take it from you basically. Yeah. Well, um, and, or, and the, or there's going to be some issue in the supply chain that knocks the gross margin off eight percentage points for a period of time that now all of a sudden that expected return deteriorates or you have large fixed cost increase in some way you have to buy out your rent at a stupid building that I'm still paying for. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a thousand ways in which that LTV to CAC assumption breaks. And yeah. you look at it as like an investor, right? Like we'll sort of look at this at like on a one year, if you can have an LTV to CAC that gives you a 50% return on invested capital in a year, like the easy narrative and is like, what's a better investment than that? Where else can you get better than a 50% return on invested capital? But there's a lot of assertions along that chain that could cause it to be wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think, and not to mention the sort of, yeah, like the Andrew Chen law of shitty cohorts, which is that the customers that you acquire first are the most valuable. And then they sort of deteriorate over time as they become less valuable as you go. But um, but I, I still think, though, what we're talking about when we describe this problem is like bad business. We're not talking about a bad use of the tool. Facebook didn't cause people to behave that way. The uh, capacity for volume that Facebook represents made it possible to do bad business, yeah. but it doesn't create bad business, right? So in other words, if I just simply get more diligent about my LTV to CAC and I move it, this is a big thing we trumpet, right? Move out of the 12 year, get to a 60 day, even hold yourself to first order profitability, whatever the mechanic is. And I say, all right, with a much tighter constraint and clearer understanding of the economics with lower variable risk to the cost side or to anything else that I can't respond to, this tool now becomes a really, really useful thing, right? Because it yeah. feels like what we're describing is just like bad accounting, <laughs> like people that were bad in a financial model. Well, let me let me ask you this. So let, I'll frame this really quickly. So as someone who's creating a product and investing in that product and then delivering that product to market, um, I use reasonable assumptions around like, how to index this, what's the size of the opportunity, where the price point should be. And I deliver it at a point in time and I measure against those assumptions and that learning cycle is super low, super slow, right? But <clears throat> I have like reasonably strong assumptions around what's going to happen and I have an exit strategy if it doesn't happen. Yep. When I look at, you know, just consuming information on Twitter as a non-marketer, I'm seeing the brightest minds that I know in the in that realm are just like, I don't know what's going on in the platform right now, or I can't, I do, I can't like conceptualize what is driving this to happen in my business that I'm working on. So what's yeah. your like response to that? Cause it, the well, you know, you, you know, what doesn't solve that catalog doesn't solve that problem. No, <laughs> like, so, so like, you know, what's really hard. Oh, sorry. Right. Like attribution is incredibly complex. And the, the first rule is like, it's a hierarchy of measurement. 
number one measure is your bank account. That's the primary measure. It's the truth. It's the source of truth. Then you move into like we what we would call like MER, total sales, total ads. But then we would look at that at a new customer level. Then we would look at channel specific outcomes and we would interpret along the value chain of metrics. But the governing principle is if I ensure that the money I paid on new customer acquisition against my cost of delivery of that product plus the CAC is profitable on a first order basis, I can't deteriorate my business. Now, I could argue that my paid channels is claiming organic demand that would exist alternatively, and that's worth testing, scaling that up and down and finding out exactly what is purely incremental. But like anybody that's gonna presume that that's a thing you solve in some other channel is just lying. Like that's an incredibly complex problem that literally the greatest statistical minds in the world have not sorted out exact MTA models, multi-touch attribution models that solve that problem. So to me, it's like sort of the, it's a bad use of energy to make that the primary focus of what we're trying to do versus like, can I understand directionally what's happening at all of these touch points? Where is the most incremental version of dollars able to be deployed? Where I'm hard excluding existing customers, I'm hard excluding new traffic, I'm gonna use a click model to make sure that this is happening. And then on an actual unit economic basis on this day, my total CAC against the new customers, was that margin accretive? If so, go baby. Because there's, you can't possibly deteriorate the business under that premise, under that set of constraints. But I'll tell well, you, people aren't clear on you can, The only way you can deteriorate a business under those set of constraints is by being ignoring the opportunity cost of spending that money elsewhere, right? Like okay. if you were to zoom out- But and, why can't you spend more dollars? That's because it's not an either or in that scenario. If those are net positive dollars, why can't you spend additional dollars? It's presumably you could, but if you could spend money and deploy capital in another channel or another avenue, and return that capital either faster or more efficiently, you would do that than continuing down this path, right? Like but why would, do you know you would choose both? This is really important. See, the people love to frame this as an either or, but if I told you I had two investments and one of them returned 12%, one returned 25%, it doesn't mean that choosing the 12%, assuming that you don't only have to choose one is a bad decision. Well, you want a, and you- there's, like a, there's a constraint on capital deployment, right? Like there- Not, you, not, a, not at a positive ROI there, is it? There should be no there should be no constraint on capital at a net positive ROI. It depends on when that capital is returned, when the cash receipt comes back to you. And if it's on first order, and it's on first order, I promise you there's capital available for it. Right. People are funding an LTV to CAC at 50% on a year. If you're first order profitable, there is no constraint on capital. And, and so this is this is like like the idea that the choice is this or that. You want as many positively returning channels that you can possibly generate as a business. That's again, anti-fragile, because if one of the channel deteriorates, you reduce the risk. This is why like this idea that everyone's gonna take their Facebook dollars and now go put them into an alternative channel that's gonna generate positive ROI. If it was able to do that, they'd have put the money there already. But I it's not gonna do I that. I agree with that because it's like, you're talking about a world in which you spend marginally until you reach that point of constraint, right? And you're, okay. you're basically evaporating. You don't have to, but a lot of people do, but, but right. yes. You don't have to, but like, this is a, this is what we're drawing out here. Like your, your first dollar is the best dollar you spend. And then you spend incrementally until you finally like cap out in that last. It's a little bit different curve, but yes, the general sure. premise, I get what sure. you're saying. The last handful of dollars that go in are basically margin. They're like marginal, uh, make no return to the business. I, what I'm arguing is like, there's a constraint that you could put where you're taking the top, the truncating that like those last dollars or the last percentage of the dollars, opening that up and moving it into another channel that does return at a higher rate, you would do that. You like that's the trade-off that I feel like isn't really happening. Let's say day. let's let's say the constraint is hundred thousand dollars, just for the sake of math. At hundred thousand dollars, I can put hundred thousand dollars into this machine every day and it generates the, me this return. Okay. That happens and it generates me positive ROI every day. 
Yeah. Okay. All, but but once I go above hundred thousand dollars, it doesn't work anymore. Okay. Now over here, I've got this other channel. You like TikTok and catalogs. Over here, I've got a channel that I can spend fifty thousand dollars before that deterioration point happens. Right. Why would I take the dollars out of the positive ROI thing to do that versus deploy new dollars into that channel? You're talking about moving it from channel to channel where you're getting an immediate feedback loop on the investment that you're making. But I don't care. You tell me the timeline that? of return. Why wouldn't, right, exactly. So like there are an investment in a retail store. Let's move away from like TikTok okay. like for a second. Let's, let's say we're going to go out and sign an LOI. We're going to like build out a retail store. We're going to spend $200,000 doing it. It's got a 18 month payback period, but the, the payback over the back loaded eight years is all profit, right? Because we okay. paid down the original investment and now we have eight years, uh, presumably. And of course- Yeah, because you're, hey, okay, right. Because like, you forecast any return on an eight year window, it's subject to all the problems you just criticized the LTV to CAC ones for, right? right? So like, th this is not a, like the idea that the uh, attempting to predict the return on invested capital over a long window of time is a difficult exercise is not a digital media problem. That's a life problem. <laughs> that life is hard to predict in large windows. And that's true on your retail store. That's true on your hiring employees. That's true on those new machines that you wanted to buy that we're gonna generate. That's true on every ERP system that I've watched people build a model to validate an investment in that just like deteriorated cash horribly, right? Like this happens in everywhere in a business, yeah. right? And I would just argue that like, I actually believe if I had to bet and build models that I would bank my own dollars on, like if I was to deploy my own capital, the clearest models that you can create are in the ones with the tightest feedback loops and the clearest data set. Now, is there well, more? But that's part of the problem. We've we've like created this world where you need the tight feedback loop, right? Because to your point, it's risk aversion. It's like yep. the long time horizon, the long payback is very risky in relative terms in today's world with the pace of change and the pace of um, competition. But do both, do both. Right. Right. Like, so, so, so let's take some bets on the retail store. Cause I agree any, like when I think about the complexity of the model uh, or the, uh, the risk factors, the upside has to be consistent with the risk factors, right? Like that's, you'd think about any investment that way. So if you told me that investment in a resale store is cash flow negative for 18 months, but then for eight years, it's massively profitable. There's a really high potential ceiling on that investment. Whereas over here, I know, okay, my LTV to CAC is going to be 20%, but it's never going to be 4,000%. It just has no potential upside relative to that. I want to also make those kinds of bets, right? right? Like, I, I just think that this idea that these things are either or is where I go, like, why are we, why is this binary? Like, you would never treat your own investment, like think about your own uh, allocation of dollars. You've got some in the index fund, you get a little bit of seed investing, whatever. And there's people that are more conservative or not. And depending on the game that you're trying to play, whether you're building a billion dollar business or you know a, a million dollar one determines that allocation. But if you have a channel that can generate net positive ROI for you, why would you look it in the face and say, no, I don't want it? Yeah, and I think that you, I listened to the podcast with you and Andrew. And yeah. like you guys talked a lot about like, the financial literacy and capital allocation and how you capitalize a business. I think it's just, I would I agree with everything that you guys said that it's really one of That's the, the most important yeah. fundamental things because what we're talking about here is businesses that are sinking a, a, a lot of their growth capital into these sort of like paid channels because of the tight feedback yes. loop and not necessarily saying- And they're wrong, plus, yeah. Plus, right? Like, yes, yes. How, how do I need to capitalize this business both for the long-term of these 
you know, fixed cost retail stores, et cetera, wholesale, and how do I capitalize my purchase orders and the cash conversion cycle there? Like all of that stuff matters so much. That's why you need to teach a course. So this is, to me, I go like, hey, rather than smashing on Facebook as this thing, is like teach people to be really good business people. And you'll make them, because this tool is so powerful. It's like, like we can't as a society in one hand say that it's crippling democracy and has the potential to win elections and say that it can't freaking sell underwear, right? Like this tool is like magic. It does incredible influence over human beings, but people are not utilizing it correctly because Facebook and Google and all these people have an incentive to push you, right? So you talk to your sales rep, you talk to anybody, they win if you if the volume goes up. Candidly, there's a lot of agency partners that the deal structure wins when the money goes up. There's a lot of incentive to push the money up for a lot of people other than the business. But if we were clear on our unit economics, we were clear on our cash conversion cycle, we had better measurement, we had better financial literacy, like then you can be really, really effective. And I think that's where I go like, you have a gift that would be of value to this world. You have all those principles. And I think that you, and this is where a lot of our positioning in the market has been to go towards finance, is to say like the way you differentiate and understand in this world is that, you know, I, I've put out the stat before, like the Retina AI folks that do, they, they all they're doing would say that 30, 30 to 50% of new customer acquisition is net never profitable. Right. That's a disaster. I agree with you. That is a, that's an industry problem. And that's Warby Parker, Harry's, Dollar Shave Club. This isn't the no names of the world. This is like the best of the best. Yeah. That's a problem. I agree with you. That is a problem. But to me, that's a financial business model problem, not a Facebook platform problem. Yep. I agree. It's an appetite for growth problem with like, uh, flawed future assumptions and the return of that capital. Right? That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. So, but could you could you agree though that your desire for success, like this growth impact size, contributes to that? Because what if we all were allowed to be smaller? What if it was successful making a, a million dollars in free cash flow every year and transforming my life? I just, I, I still feel like those. If I were going to do that. And this is again just me. Like I would have like a pool cleaning business, or like a, I wouldn't get into e-commerce. I would paint houses or have a house painting business, like an annuity business that that like wasn't in this day-to-day -day grind that we're in. I think it's a hard way to make a million dollars for sure. And I'm I'm so um, impressed and and floored uh, by everyone who's able to do it. Um, but I think it's like really creating something that's defensible, that's generational. You know, like. When I, yeah. we were in the Bonobo stage group, you know, going back to Coors, Coors was going to be the next um, coach and Bonobos was going to be the next J. Crew and Ralph Lauren. And you go down the line, Outdoor Voices is going to be the next Lululemon or even take on Nike. And I think there's just something, maybe it's my competitive spirit. There's just something in me that like really wants to like put a stamp on yeah. all this. And I, I think I think through these yeah. problems and these challenges through that sort of like headspace. And look, I, it's noble. Like it, it, it feels important. Like I, I agree with you. And I think I've tried to wrestle with, and not to get too philosophical, but like, what is that? Like, how much of that is like a pure desire to create something meaningful? How much of it is ego? How much of it is any of those things for myself? And I think we all probably have a different answer to this question. And I think for me, what I've tried to to sort out, and what I try and sit with is hear from the entrepreneur. What is your ambition? What do you, what is it that you desire? And then how could I inform a strategy that would help you to achieve that? And to separate my individualistic desire from the application and to think, okay, all these tools have a use in some case, what is it that you desire? And I agree, if someone said to me, I wanna be coach 
or I'm trying to be the next Nike, then that would frame a very different set of behaviors. Like it has to, you can't, I agree, you cannot behave uh, without deep investment in building tremendous value into the idea of the thing as a whole, the brand, yeah. so to speak, without, you just, you can't. So right. it has to um, be your stated purpose. On the, on that's the right. Is to like that's be right. next and to do it better. And that sets a level of expectation. And then that's how you capitalize against those expectations. Like that's how that's creates the cycle. But um, I think, you know, on the flip side of it, there's a lot of people who are sort of like net negative on VC backed companies and all that they access and, yeah. and burning capital and all that kind of stuff. On the inside of those companies, I feel like we, that's never even a considerate, you know, like it's really just like, yeah. we have this sort of high, high bar and high goal. Well, see, what people don't realize is that VCs show up because there's a founder with that identity, like that, that want that. It's not the other way around very often, right? It's right. not to say it doesn't happen, that there isn't pressure. Of course there is. But a VC who's trying to invest large amounts of capital showed up because some entrepreneur had a big dream. And they told them, I'm going to commit to this purpose that is big and noble and possible. That's why the dollar showed up in the first place, right? right. Like, so it so has the kind of gravitational like, energy, right? Like once all of that comes together, it starts to pull in talent and starts to pull in resources. And it's like, it has the opportunity to become something, but it has the, the downside risk also of, you know, what we've seen in a lot of these cases where a lot of those assumptions were just really tough to kind of materialize. But I also just will kind of finish the thought as, I think a lot of people look through the lens of we had, you know, 12 D2C IPOs and a bunch. We, we did share that yeah. exchange where we said universally everyone's down double digits and some of them are down like 80%. Yep. Every, I think people want to look at points in time as the finish line of like, here, we're done. Like D2C is done. This is the look back on it. I take the perspective of us being, and I think you probably would share this. We're in the second inning of this thing. Totally. Like, and that's part of the obsession that I have for this. And part of why these dialogues with you are great is because we're in the second inning I, as a baseball player, I want to, I want to know what the pitch count is. I want to know, like, I want to know how to win inning three, four five and win this game. And that's right. And that's what keeps it going. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think what happens is you go through these cycles where, and I think this is the one that we're in right now, where the constraints breed innovation that actually sets up the next era. Right. And so, What's happening with margin pressure right now, like is going to breed innovation in supply chain. What's happening with CAC is gonna breed innovation in marketing. And I think I think this is where NFTs pop up. This is where AI pops up. This is where, um, you know, like, uh, what I, I, again, I'm obsessed with this sort of like the canna model of like just deteriorating beverage supply chain into a single source item in your home. It's like all these innovative ways, 3D printing, all these things that are gonna become part of our future, while they're not here now, um, they're gonna be born from the environment that today we sit in. And yep. Facebook was that innovation before, and it bred this era. Shopify was that innovation before, these tech-enabled tools that bred an era. Then there's sort of competition that comes in and causes constraint, innovation reoccurs. And that's, that's the beauty of sort of what capitalism at its best provokes, is that in the interest of a giant market opportunity, there's a real financial incentive to innovate towards it. And people aren't just going to go, oh, well, these businesses aren't making profit. Eh, let's shut them all down. That's not right. what's going to happen. They're going to find a way, right? Absolutely. And I think that the talent that this industry has drawn into it and the, and the reasons that people get involved in these businesses is absolutely going to be like the leading, continue to be the leading edge of innovation. You yeah. know, like this whole thing is an organism, right? And an organism is going to innovate it's going to adapt or it's going to die. And I totally agree with you that 
we're going to find a way um, to, and I think the other side of this can be really powerful um, in terms of once some of those things are solved. Yep. Well, all right, man, we went about an hour and 20 minutes. They said it couldn't be done. They said it would take four hours. I think we covered a, a good amount of it. We left, we, we mutually agreed to leave NFTs out because it was probably the, the least useful conversation for, for the two of us to put together. And who needs uh, two more white dudes talking about NFTs anyways. So, um, so we'll, uh, we'll leave that for another day, but man, uh, I'll, I'll see you in the Twitter sphere and I'm not going anywhere because I, I genuinely appreciate your point of view and it challenges mine and I'm thankful for it. Yeah, me too, man. Likewise, uh, iron sharpens iron and you know, you as in a chorus of other voices is really like um, what helps me learn. So I appreciate the opportunity to cut it up with you. All right, buddy. All right. Thanks, everybody. Right Bye. On.